Hey, Daniel. How's it going? Hey, Evan. Happy Friday. I'm doing all right. Just gearing up for some home renovation projects I got this weekend and another episode of The Last of Us. How about you? I don't even know what I'm doing yet. Uh, it, I guess it is Friday. It's a snow day here still. Uh, so for listeners, Portland got hit this really this week that we're recording. So um, yeah, I I probably need to go up and start helping my parents with their taxes. Most likely, that'll be my honey do list this weekend. So, all right. Well, I know we're moving into our seventh episode of season two. Lifelong learning is what this one's called. Um, should we jump right in? Yeah, let's jump into hot topics and introductions. It's crazy that we're already on episode seven of season two. Feels like we just finished season one. Uh, but I'll go ahead and introduce our first guest today, uh, someone that we've seen before on the podcast. Uh, so recurring guest uh, with over 15 years of healthcare recruiting experience. I'm going to list out just their roles, but it's like it's like the whole hospital here. So we have like physician and nurse recruitment, support staff, accounting, engineering, IT. I don't know if there's anything that we're missing there, but uh, it's an extensive list. And thanks, Marcy, for joining us today on the podcast. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be here, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Awesome. Well, I get to introduce our other reoccurring guests, um, probably, uh, well, now becoming a podcast veteran, I think he can take over for me <laughs> on a fly. Um, so uh, with 16 plus years of revenue cycle, patient access, primarily focused management, um, a former regional director um, of a um, three-time MAP award-winning um, multi-health system um, organization based in East Texas, a former board director of NAHAM, um, which keeps us engaged with our NAHAM colleagues um, as well, and currently our director of people and culture. Welcome back, Tim. Thank you very much, Evan. I'm, I'm always happy to come onto your podcast. We're going to have to have you actually like co-host one, one with Daniel and I'll just get to do the editing for a change. <laughs> I'll work my way up to it. <laughs> All right. Well, in this episode, we wanted to bring you guys back and really focus in on like the education component or how did we all venture into leadership because we're all considered um, Wilshire leaders here, but we all have had different leadership uh, talents and processes in our past lives as well. So um, really, that's what the, this is and wanting to give our listeners some ideas on what they can do um, future state as we jump into other topics. But for our hot topics portion, um, we thought we would venture around really focusing in on, um, you know, how none of us were really formally trained as leaders and just kind of grew in into our roles. And then, you know, how do we continue to expand our own individual knowledge as leaders? So, um, so my first question is, um, you know, Dan, it's I'm gonna switch it up and not go right to our guests and ask Daniel because Daniel gave us really some great perspective on how you became a leader, um, you know, and all of a sudden had staff. So, so can you give our listeners a little bit of that story and then we'll dive into our own? Yeah, it's a little roundabout. I think if you work in this industry long enough and you get to know enough people, you sort of stumble your way into a leadership role. Just, I don't know if it's tenure-based, if it's who you know, or just you have a number of years on your on your resume. But um, I found myself with some staff at a, at a previous job, um, was doing IT, like manager, director type work, uh, managing a 
uh, host of analysts. And I found like I had no experience in like how to manage these people. I was like, I've done project management work before. I've been in various other roles on projects, but I've never had people directly report to me. And I didn't ever learn how to address that. Uh, I'd also say the place I was working at didn't really have a good support structure or like staff in place to really teach us how to do that. I was just sort of thrown into the fire and told. <laughs> uh, I remember the first the first big thing I had was I had to do like a end of year evaluation for these people. And I was like, I don't exactly know what I should be evaluating these folks on. I think they're doing good work. We've been managing things, but we haven't really like set goals in place for these folks or like types of things that maybe saw another another roles. So that was like a wake up call to me that I needed to do some personal work. But I also find that that is something that just like I've had good bosses in the past and I've I've kind of just looked to them for my experience, but I never really had a formalized training plan in place. Uh, so that was something that as I sit, I'm like, what, nine years or eight, nine years into this, <laughs> into this world of healthcare IT. Uh, and I still haven't had formalized training, but it's something that I'm exploring and wanting to learn more about. I didn't find the mute button, guys. <laughs> uh, Tim and Marcy, what about you? Like, what kind of, how did you venture into leadership and, and kind of grow into where you guys are at, at, as leaders today? Marcy, I'll be the Southern gentleman and let ladies go first. Okay, sounds good. So I fell into it by accident. Um, just with my HR background, it was just listening to employees and just trying to kind of figure out what it was that they needed in the organization in order for them to stay or, you know, the goals or things like that that they had in mind. So it was just kind of talking with supervisors or managers and just kind of going over things that I heard from just listening and then developing processes, um, even with my recruitment background, just some of the things that I was doing with recruitment in order to, you know, attract candidates to the organizations and then how long those candidates were staying, you know, as employees. So with all of that, it just kind of gained me um, a seat at the table to basically say, hey, you know, what we're doing is working. And you know, just kind of keep building upon that. And that's when I started being heard by leaders. And then I was invited to, you know, basically join the leadership team and say, you know, hey, you can start mentoring these individuals and doing these sorts of things to kind of help the organization grow. Yeah, and for me, uh, I, I'm i one of the the lucky few that that I'm, I'm very much a take charge person by nature. That's just my personality. Uh, and so that, that I think has served me well in a lot of my career choices and career opportunities that I've had. Uh, it got me into entry-level leadership. I admittedly, I had a lot to learn when you get into entry-level leadership because, you know, uh, one of the downsides of sometimes having a take charge, uh, type personality is that you can come across as being more of a boss than a leader sometimes. Uh, and so you kind of have to learn the difference between the two and, and what works better especially when you're working side by side with the team members that you're, you're in charge of at that particular point. Um, from there kind of went into like a, a director and then regional director type role um, to where I really found a passion for uh, mentoring individuals and, and helping those individuals grow into their own career paths. Sometimes that could be, you know, leadership careers of their own. Some wanted to go into like the education route, but just, 
you helping those individuals by using my experiences and how I was able to kind of get through, say, college, for example, or if I knew individuals in this particular career path or department, you know, within the organization that I work, helping kind of make these connections and help these individuals grow. Um, when you take that approach over, say, the boss approach, which is just telling people what to do, you end up earning a significantly more respect for individuals over the long run. Uh, and people, you know, are, are much more willing to come, A, work for you, and B, follow you uh, into future things as well. I think it's unique, interesting and unique because we each took a different spin here. And I know I haven't shared yet my story, but we're each taking a different spin on what is a formal leader versus an informal leader and really like toying with that aspect, right? Like where Marcy started off just like inform, being an informal leader and grasping information and, and really providing advice and guidance. And then from her story, really moved into more of a formal leadership component where, you know, Daniel's thrown in and said, here's all these staff and figure it out and just kind of roll with it. And, you know, Tim, you, you did more of that natural growth and progression component. I think we've each had a unique story. Like, I mean, I started my career off in long-term care, you know, as a dishwasher and then moved into filing a file clerk and medical records. And then all of a sudden became a project, um, a consultant where I would go in and like help with executive surveys and things of that nature. And then actually fix where they had a corrective action issue. And, and out of that, I was able to born like my own position with the organization and move into corporate compliance and billing compliance and doing the compliance realm. And then flip that over to my acute side of the world, really started off as an analyst and moved from an analyst into a manager within six months and then moved into these components. But I've always never had a job per se that's already been defined until late in my career, actually, where I've always been able to mold and blend it and develop it into either having teams or being a influential leader. So, you know, I can think back at my Providence days where I was the revenue integrity program manager, like I was over a program I had team members dotting into me, but I really didn't have staff initially. I had to influence the organization and be an influential leader versus a formal leader. But, you know, I think that's what has allowed me, at least in my career so far, to really look at it as I got to influence people versus tell people what to do. But there is a time and place where you do have to be the boss and and also do the hard part, right? Like, and say, no, this is what we're going to do, or this is how it's going to be done, or you're not, you're not cutting the mustard. So um, what are some things, you know, thinking about, thinking about your own career path as becoming a leader, you know, that you individually have had to do to expand your own knowledge set to, to really bring that into the, in, and that's a question for all three of you. I can start. I'll take the lead on this again. Uh, I've also never heard cut the mustard. That's a, that's a phrase I've never heard before, Evan. Uh, <laughs> but as far as when I was like thrown into the thick of it and I was like, what the heck am I doing here? I have staff that are looking to me for direction and guidance. And I'm also just trying to figure out like my own direction and guidance. Um, I first took the path of like looking at various, I guess you would call them like titles or like certifications of sort. Like I was like, I'm going to go get like as much knowledge as I can out there. So I was looking at like a PMP or some other like various things that a lot of folks in our industry will do to expand their knowledge base or expand their expand their project management uh, skill set. And as I was studying for it, I just dropped it. I was like, this isn't really going to help me like lead people. This isn't going to help me 
um, like develop like a good culture uh, with the folks around me. And where I ended up pivoting, and I actually I wrote a blog post about this last year. It's probably somewhere on our website. Uh, but I started reading books, and uh, I think what ended up happening to me is that when I was like broken down and at my worst spot, and I was like, "This isn't going well." There are certain times when you're more receptive to feedback and more receptive to hearing stories, and books are a great medium for that. I read one book in particular called "The One Minute Manager Meets the Monkey," and it's about like a manager who's been broken down and trying to figure out like how do I manage people, how do I, how do I do this this response this job this responsibility has been given to me. Uh, just like getting those stories and anecdotes were really helpful for me to piece together my my path as a as a leader. I'll pass the uh, the mic to Tim. Tim, you wanna you wanna chime in? Yeah, I um, I, I found that you know again I was you know the the type A and kind of getting thrusting myself into the management thing is is where I kind of started. But I found that you know with that growth and success that I was really pursuing at that point, it, it, it got to a point to where, oh, now I'm the director. Now I'm not the one that's enforcing Fed policies. Now I'm the, I'm the senior most access individual, you know, in this organization. I have to write the policies and procedures, which means I have to know a lot more about like the, the you know, regulations and laws and things that govern patient access and insurance and things like that. So I found that a lot of the work I take towards was more towards like, uh, organizations like Mayhem and, and different educational outlets and things of that nature to where I can make sure that I am very familiar with how things have to work. And then I would take the knowledge that I gain and then apply that, um, you know, back at my organization. Uh, that also helped me connect with a lot of other more seasoned access professionals, uh, which I was really seeking out at the time uh, that I could bounce ideas off of. of kind of, well, why don't we do this versus this? They would like Medicare or something like that. And so they would they would have a lot more information on that that I kind of learned from. Uh, but that, that was probably my most valuable source of, of, you know, education and growth for me is that, you know, finding other like-minded peers and, and you know, getting, you know, uh, vertical and horizontal type mentors to kind of help me out through that. Yeah, for me, it was along kind of both the lines of yours, Tim and Daniel's, <clears throat> but it was a little bit different because I, I kind of started the workforce probably before you guys did. <laughs> so cultures were a little bit different back then. Um, and it was hard to have voices heard or to be taken seriously for certain things. So I did a lot of sitting back and watching and seeing what a lot of managers that I had, what they did and how it made me feel personally within my career. And then I would say, well, you know, if I ever have the opportunity to where I get to be a manager or a leader, I don't want to behave this way. I don't want somebody to feel this way. So what am I going to do that's different? And then the second question was, what am I going to do for myself to where I would have the confidence to be taken seriously that if I ever had the opportunity to be a leader, what do I have to solidify that I have the skills to do that? So I would read a lot of books. So um, one of the books I read was um, How to Influence Others. I read that book, um, How to Make Friends and Influence Others. That was like one of the first books that I read. And then I read like, Who Took My Cheese? Um, that was a good book. And I mean, I'm talking like I was probably 20 when I read the book, Who Took My Cheese? But I mean, it's still something that stays with me throughout changes in organizations and letting people go. And how do people take that and how do they handle that? And then it was a personal need for myself to get those certifications in HR. So taking a course to study for those and get my, you know, APHR, which is an Associates in Professional Human Resources with 
HRCI, and then getting my PHR, which is professional and human resources with HRCI. Um, for me, that still wasn't enough. I wanted to solidify the fact that I knew what I was doing in recruitment. So I took a course and took an exam to get my PRC certification, which is professional recruiter certification. And then when I came on board with the Wilshire Group, I am kind of recruiting for a little bit different healthcare opportunities than what I was recruiting for before. So in order for the candidates to take me seriously as a recruiter, I had to understand what the job descriptions were, what individuals were doing. Now, I started out of the hospital, you know, as a patient rep, you know, admitting clerk, you know, I understand all like the front end, but when you get more into the mid cycle of revenue or the back end, I wanted to be able to have a conversation with these candidates to say, hey, I understand what you're doing. I can sell this job to you and the organization. So for me, part of the lifelong learning was I felt it was necessary to get my CRCR through HFMA um, and have that certification just so if somebody's out there on LinkedIn, well, why would I want to interview with the Wilshire Group or interview with Marcy? Does she even know what we do as you know, revenue cycle consultants. Um, so, and again, I don't stop. Like I'm reading digita uh, Digitizing Talent right now. Um, I just finished Trust and Inspire, which is a servant leadership way of, you know, leading others. Um, I'm constantly reading, constantly learning, constantly trying to look things up. And I feel like an individual who wants to be in leadership has to continue to do that, to stay up with current trends, multiple generations that are now going to be working together. I can digress. I can go on all day about this, but I will stop. <laughs> well, we're going to continue to go on. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Tim. Interestingly enough, uh, Marcy inspired me to pick up a couple of books that I would have never thought to get in the first place. I'm actually in the process of going through HBR's uh, uh, top 10 must reads on building a culture, uh, which is one of the books that uh, you know Marcy recommended um, and, and uh, directly applies to what uh, my internal role with Wilshire and what I'm tasked with doing over the next year or two is, is really try, trying to build up a formalized culture and mentorship program uh, with the Wilshire group. So we need to publish a book list. That should be like someone's blog idea. Like if you need a next blog, just like publish the <laughs> best, best 10 list, uh, best 10 books that people <laughs> recommend here. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that would be awesome. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Claim Capital is a team of ex-EPIC staff focused on preventing denials. Instead of showing what was denied, which is the standard for other solutions available today, Claim Capital pinpoints why claims are denied. By training machine learning models on an organization's claim and remittance data, Claim Capital can identify the causes of denials and recommend changes in EHR build or workflows to prevent them from happening in the future. With a completely HIPAA-compliant infrastructure, no software implementations, and a zero-risk pricing structure, organizations can quickly and safely recover lost revenue. And we're back. All right. So we're going to transition into our next segment here. Uh, I'll take my notes about a book list for another time. But uh, going outside the box, uh, Evan, you want to kick us off here? Yeah. So, um, you know, as we talked about our own personal growth as leaders and some things that our listeners might want to consider about development, you know, Tim, I think this is, you alluded to mentorship and a mentorship program. And I think mentorship is one of those out of the box ideas of, you know, what people think. Can you, can you expand a little bit more for us in our listeners? Yeah. Yeah. I'd be happy to. Mentorship is a, uh, you know, a passion of mine in a lot of ways. I love being able to influence and help people grow. It's, it's how I built a lot of my career to this point. And I think part of the reason that I was, I was given the role that I have with Wilshire. Um, 
I'm quite frankly finding it a little challenging because the mentorship with a company that works so remotely from each other is vastly different from say something where I can pull somebody into my office and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation for say like 30 minutes or an hour to help kind of guide and direct things. So where I'm having to kind of go outside of the box even a little more just to try to work through exactly how this mentorship program should look. I'm working very closely with Marcy on a lot of that. A couple of the ideas that we have is, is you know, identifying, you know, individuals uh, within Wilshire that, that we think would be uh, good mentors to, you know, maybe some of the newer Wilshire group, maybe newer consultants that have never done a consulting type role before uh, and pairing those types of individuals together. Uh, we found some formal training for people that, you know, may be interested in doing mentorship but have never formally done it before. Uh, so we're looking at, at, you know, kind of rolling out a bit of an education platform with this as well. Uh, and then eventually growing this a little further, we've had people that have, have expressed interest with, uh, you know, learning more about how to become a leader because they know nothing but consulting at this point in their career and they want to transition more to the operational side of the house or vice versa. You have an operational person that's want to transition the other way. So trying to strategically pair these individuals with other individuals that have a lot more experience within the organization uh, and then hopefully help encourage and grow that relationship uh, over the coming weeks and months to, to make something of this program long term. I think that really speaks to, you know, like a formal program, but mentorship can definitely mm -hmm. be an informal program as well. And I like, and I'll, I'll flip flop it on the opposite side. Like it was like, I look at my career and look at, you know, really inspiring leaders for me. I mean, I've worked for leaders who I would never want to work for again. And I've worked for leaders who I've maintained long-term relationships with years and years later. I mean, I can think of one Marty Moore, um, former chief nurse here in the Portland metro area, uh, at Prov was with Providence. Um, she's gone to Medline Industries and a bunch of other places now and doing her own kind of nurse mentor consulting component. But she's still somebody to this day. Like I'm thinking of my clients that I'm working with today and they had a loss, um, which is where I've stepped in now as their interim leader. And I first person I thought of like who should I reach out to I'm it's around Christmas time the this team is struggling with like dip, you know like loss and grief at the same time of trying to move an organization forward and they're in calendar year end and nearing fis their fiscal year end you know trying to target it first person I reached out to as my mentor to say hey what can I do or what should I be able to do for these individuals so just kind of like thinking of it in a different you know aspect and actually alludes to a book. So I'll add to your list there. <laughs> but, but I mean, it definitely, definitely like is one of those informal components, you know, of a sense of like, Hey, this is somebody who I still respect and honor and, and go to for advice on a daily basis, which is not necessarily me saying, Hey, I'm new to the consulting realm and I don't know what I'm doing, or I'm new to an organization can, you know, mentor me through that. So I think, both lend a great perspective. And I think, you know, as our director of people and culture, that's something that you've definitely, as you're building your program, have also been sharing with us, like, how do we take that into consideration to have that informal component? So. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So much of mentorship is about building a personal relationship with individuals over time. You're, I mean, you, you can assign a mentor uh, every day of the week, but if the person's the mentee in the relationship doesn't trust or respect the individual that you're you're pairing them up with, it's not going to be a very fruitful um, you know venture for either one of them. So it's it's really trying to peg individuals that that a have that passion, b have that ability to kind of connect and 
and conversate with individuals to, to really make that happen. And not every one of those uh, relationships has to be a formal relationship. I've got people that, that I would consider my peers uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. People that, again, people I've worked with with uh, conferences and organizations and people even within Wilshire that, that I would very much consider mentors because they're, they have a different life experience and career growth experience to this point that I think I can gain information from long term. So it's really from developing a program perspective, trying to identify those types of individuals and where people's strengths really lie and trying to get that to where we can, you know, build a good program for Wilshire Group long term after that. Yeah, part yeah, of, I, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Dan, you're fine. I was just gonna say, part of what you said really resonates with me. Like I do IT stuff and I'm really comfortable with IT stuff, but if I could have a mentor that can kind of coach me or at least guide me, help direct me in the operational world or like the other, the flip side of the house, it would allow me to expand my opportunities that are in front of me. Just even here at the Wilshire Group, just thinking about like where I could get plugged in on various projects or have a little bit more mm -hmm. life to the work that I'm doing. Like sometimes, you know, you've been doing IT for a long time and <laughs> not that it gets boring, but you maybe want to try something else for a change for a little bit, or there's an opportunity that comes yeah. up and you're like, I can actually do that. I feel comfortable stepping in there and having had that coaching and guidance and grow my skill set. Um, so that, that to me really resonates and is a, uh, would be a cool, interesting opportunity if that were that were to come up. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And and you're right, burnouts burnouts a real thing, even in an area that you love, you know, working in and 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 you know being involved with every day. Burnout can happen, and and so being able to kind of expand your horizon over time, I think, can you know not only make the individual a little more fulfilled and a little more. Uh, well-rounded in a lot of ways, but it, it also goes back to your, your emotional health a little bit too, because it keeps you engaged. It keeps you happy with what you're doing. And, and you know, ideally from a, a, a selfish Wilshire perspective here, it keeps you employed with Wilshire for the long term as well. And to kind of spin off of what you said, if, if someone's interested in building a coaching culture, I mean, those are some good things to keep in mind. If your employees are doing that quiet quitting or if they're not engaged or if they are facing that burnout, like the number one question that someone should ask themselves if they're wanting to create this is what obstacles are they going to face creating a coaching culture? Mm -hmm. um, and then just trying to figure out how you're going to get around those obstacles and get buy-in not only from your stakeholders, leadership team, but also from all the employees that are involved. So that's something to take into consideration as well. You know, as I, quitting oh. that you just mentioned, what is that? I, I've, I've heard the term before, but I don't know if I fully understand it. So quiet quitting is when your employee is still doing what the basic needs are of their position, but they're not wanting to jump in and do anything extra or participate in any, say, if you're a remote virtual company and you have remote happy hours, they really don't want to participate in those. If you have like company retreats or something, they really don't want to attend. They just want to do the bare minimum to get that paycheck, you know, just to slide by, just to keep them under the radar so that they don't get in trouble. Um, but they are the ones that are those passive candidates that are not looking, but they might be looking just a little as, oh, this seems interesting. I might check it out. Those are the individuals that are going to be first to jump from your organization are the ones that are doing that quiet quitting. I think with that too, I mean, I think that takes us to kind of my next question for the group is, you know, as, as we each individually continue to grow as leaders, what should we and what should our listeners really be looking at 
what are our considerations that they should be doing to help develop others? Like as we're developing ourselves, how are we then passing the wealth on to others at the same time? I'm going to go first on this one. So I'm going to say as a woman, if you are a woman leader, the women that are working with you on your team are not your competition. You should be mentoring those women. You should be building them up. You should be coaching them, whether you're using them within your organization or preparing them to go to another organization. You should be listening to them, having communications with them, supporting them if they want to get certifications, discussing with your upper management how to get reimbursement for those certifications. And also, if you're having one-on-ones, one-on-ones with them, if you're noticing a trend of, Maybe they're are they're not self confident, or they're a little anxious, or you know they're not speaking up when they should, or they they're not asking for that seat at the table. Doing your part to give them materials that they need so that they can have that seat at the table, so it does boost up their self confidence and take them under your wing, not necessarily to baby them or have them be like the victim employee, but it's our job as women to build each other up so that we each generation get better and better, if that makes sense. I think it does. I was listening to a podcast actually last week um, on leadership. And one of the themes and topics was what there, you know, whether you're a minority group or you're not a non-minority group, you know, part of our job is to recognize like we're not in the way of each other. Like it, it just means that there are more people to be there and and there's more ability to get representation. So how we partner and develop each other in that podcast really uh, kind of resonated to me thinking about, you know, us coming together to talk about leadership and growth was around that aspect of like each of us, we, I mean, you know, we can each look and identify our own way, but in whether it's physically or, you know, um, in a social realm, but how we partner and how we don't compete with each other. And we take, we take it and we really are, you know, supportive of, you know, Tim got the promotion, Evan didn't get the promotion, that type of deal, whether, you know, yes, it sucks for Evan, but at the same time, how do I partner and make Tim more successful as a leader and and doing that? Um, And that's really what it comes down to, I think, for each of us. So trying to, you know, piggyback on you, Marcy, on what Marcy was saying there is really like, it's, we're not in a, like, yes, there's competition for a role, but once that's passed, then it's really about how do you partner and develop each other as a group. So I think that is one thing that I love about here at Wilshire, right? Like we all tend to pull on each other's strengths. I mean, I, I suck at certain things on the web. So I constantly go to Daniel for the podcast. Like, I don't know how to do this. Can you figure it out or in that regards? But even like, you know, today, Marcy and I were talking about, um, you know, I was working on a budget for a project for our team, one of our teams. And I had to reach out to Marcy just to vent like, okay, what am I missing? How, you know, I need some advice on how to, how to word this because I don't want it to come across a certain way, but I really want like to still drive a point home. Like I'm trying to keep us in where we're, there is some net revenue on it and that we're not just breaking even at, or having a loss in that component. So how do I word that to the audience of this message of like, Hey, this is what we're trying to, to work out that type of deal. So, um, and I think those are like the side the, the mentorship of like, 
it's just advice, but that is a mentorship relationship going back, back in that realm. So, mm-hmm. so back to my question, what are things, <laughs> yeah, give us your two cents, Tim. <laughs> yeah. So I'd, I think that there are probably more people that would be very um, good, if not great at being a mentor that, that, don't actively jump into that particular realm because they don't feel like they're a subject matter expert. And I think that it's very important to call out that you don't necessarily have to be the expert in the room to be considered a mentor. You are still relaying your experiences, your growth to this point, your ability to kind of help an individual that isn't at the same point in the path as you to help grow. Um, but it, it's really going to be a learning and growth experience for both of you uh, in a lot of ways. If you don't know the answer to your mentee's question, go out and find it. And then you, you both are learning something as a result of it and you can both grow there together. But I think that you know if, if people took that approach more often uh, with a mentor-mentee type relationship, that you not only have better uh, cooperation and organization in terms of how these programs exist and, and grow, but also more successful uh, companies and organizations because you have that cohesiveness that that may not necessarily be there because you're developing relationships that you wouldn't otherwise develop because you didn't jump into this and take this risk to begin with. I was going to say I, one I've, of the thing I, I would think about just like mentor-mentee relationships, especially as we've moved into this remote world of sorts. Like I, I just thinking about like something I would like mentorship on is not necessarily things that I need like growth or um, experience in, but the things that I'm good at that I just can't do in this remote world that I want someone to just like help keep me, keep me fresh on. So like an example would be like public speaking. Like maybe I, I I don't have a lot of opportunities to do that right now. And I want someone to help coach me on that. And maybe it's something I'm good at. Um, but I just want someone to be there to help me, uh, keep up to date on the things that I'm good at, or just make sure that I'm continuing to grow on the things that I'm good at. Um, that would be somewhere where I'm like, I would like that to be a mentorship <laughs> opportunity that I have for myself. I like, where do I subscribe? Where do I get help in that? Uh, but yeah, it's just like sometimes the things you, to your point, Tim, like there's not like an office where someone can pull you aside or, uh, or at least we don't do that as much virtually as we maybe should. But um, this sometimes think about as I'm listening here. Mm-hmm. Well, in a lot of my uh, conversations, even with just folks in Wilshire, I'm I'm developing relationships and developing friendships with a number of individuals that I talk with on the regular. Um, And there's, there's a mentor mentee relationship that I think plays both ways uh, with something like that, Uh, because you're developing this, this level of comfort that may not have been there when I started working to Wilshire say two years ago. Um, And and so as you kind of go through that and as you develop this relationship and this, this comfort level with individuals, it's always good to be thinking in the back of your mind, like how can I help uplift and, and this and this person or, you know, in both in their career and their personal life, whatever they may want at that particular time, but also at the same time, you know, how can, can they, you know, help push me? How can they help better me over time? Uh, I think Marcy is a great example of that, just in terms of making me think a little more outside of the box in terms of how I can develop a, uh, or help develop a, a culture, uh, a people and culture program with Wilshire and a mentorship pro- program because I had a very rigid idea in my head. I'm kind of like, oh wait, that's not necessarily going to work in this particular format that I'm in now. So, so you know, being able to have those types of conversations and develop those relationships, I think even 
indirectly is is going to be a benefit for the individual long run. Yeah, I I, I agree, Tim. I think just building relationships in general with your peers actually falls into that, you know, unspoken mentorship component of, yes. of in that informal space. Um before we uh jump to our next break, does anybody have uh any final thoughts on um, you know, things that we should be thinking about as outside outside of the box? I just want to add kind of what to Daniel said, you know, when he referred to, you know, public speaking or presentations or, you know, speech, even developing a mentorship program, you still have your mentee, but part of that is also professional development. So listening and hearing what the employees want and then giving them those tools. So it, you know, it goes kind of hand in hand with having someone to speak to, but then giving them the tools to use. So in our case, if we have Litmos for our, you know, learning development, find those courses. If that's something that Daniel's interested in, then we push out those courses to him. He knows that he's been heard. He has those to keep him refreshed. And then occasionally, you know, we look and say, oh, hey, I heard of this course where you can take a certification class on public speaking if it's something you're still interested in. And the company say, here, you know, do this, reimburse for. So that kind of goes within the mentorship as well as the personal relationship you have with the individual. Yeah, and I think piggybacking on that too, it's also as a as a formal or informal leader, knowing when to step out too. So like, you know, in 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 our case, like instead of me being the one to report out our metrics on the all staff meeting around the podcast, letting Daniel do that. And that gives him the opportunity to do the public speaking in a virtual setting, you know, that type of deal. So it, it naturally, I think as some of us are rolling out our director reports, it just naturally falls into, you know, oh, let me give this update. But really making those active approaches for each other and hearing people, I think, is what is key to um, and, and being able to push back on other leaders, too, and say, nope, it, it is you don't need to do this. You should allow your your, you know, this other person to take your place and, and, and do that or be the one that speaks on that in that behalf so that they develop that skill set. Agreed. I'm smiling over here. I feel like I just got delegated work. Yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's run out to a quick break and we will be right back, everybody. Fine Medical serves a growing base of more than 800 active hospitals and health systems nationwide. Their best practices are hardwired through technology solutions, proven to help hospitals achieve sustainable top performance. Their well-published results include improving financial performance, physician and staff alignment, patient experience, compliance, and patient safety and quality measures. Learn more at VineMedical.com. That's V-Y-N-E Medical.com. And we're back from that break. All right. Uh, so moving over to Wilshire Lab, we do have a question today from one of our listeners. Uh, and I'll just read this verbatim. Uh, feel free to chime in with your thoughts, everyone. But as organizations continue to face financial impacts, think cost cutting, but budget costs, et cetera, uh, what recommendations do you all have for leaders to stay engaged with peers in the industry? Um, and I'll pass that over to Evan, you first. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think this is an interesting question in general, because we're still seeing in healthcare, you know, we're now part of the recession and part of COVID, we're now starting to see more of those financial impacts. And I think, you know, some of our smaller healthcare, you know, critical access hospitals and in, you know, um, rural health, they, they have a different reimbursement model. So it's not, they're not necessarily facing some of the same financial 
constraints, but they do face the staffing constraints because they don't have as many leadership team members. So getting a way to be able to go to a conference or be engaged is a little bit different. So I would say my first thing is any organization that offers a hybrid or a virtual conference is always something good because usually they're now network have created a networking session where like there are many rooms and you can jump into those many rooms and have conversations or even in that regards, just, um, you know, being able to be on a distribution list and then reach out to the author of a, an article and things of that nature. That that is one way of staying engaged with your peers. Um, but if you know pre-COVID, you had all those in-person relationships. You expanded on having, um, you know, exchanging business cards, contact information. There's nothing preventing you from saying, "Hey, can we do a virtual happy hour?" I mean, we're all past that now, and in the most part, you're seeing people come together. But there's nothing to say, "Hey, I would love to get together with you virtually just to have a conversation, you know, over coffee or whatnot to maintain that relationship." Especially if you can't get to a conference um, in that regard. Tim and Marcy, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I would I would echo you honestly. I mean, if you're not able to actually break away because of the your organization's financial constraints to a conference, look at you know either attending or purchasing the sessions and listening to the the uh, presentations after the fact. Typically, most most big conferences will record and post those sessions on their website to where you can actually go and get a little bit of education that way uh, for contacts you've made with individuals uh, at previous conferences, do what we're doing now. I mean, Zoom and web type conversations, you know, we're actually able to see somebody's faces have come so long just in the last five years uh, compared to where they used to be. So yeah, definitely do something like that when when an in-person thing is not, not available to you. Yep, I agree. And if you are an individual that is able to go to one of the conferences and a colleague is not able to attend, just make sure you give them communication, bring back materials for them, share whatever knowledge that you learned there and give them that resources as well. So that way you keep that conversation going and keep building that relationship. Yeah, I think I think that's one cool thing that I've seen at an organization where they've taken it and said, okay, if you're going, you're now going to come back and give us a mini version of that. So like at our next all staff meeting, you're going to get 20 minutes and part of your education, your us investing in you is now coming back and teaching it and and sharing what were those highlights. And then for us then as an organization to strategize how to implement it. And um, I just did this recently with one of my clients um, and we went to Western Region for HFMA and the two leaders that went now have brought that back. And now somebody's like, who was the speaker again? I'm going to reach out to them to get more context. So now I can try to implement what they were speaking about at that conference at our, at their organization. So it's, it's kind of cool um, to see how bringing that full circle back, but if you don't establish that right out of the gate I, as an expectation, it's kind of harder after the fact. It's really funny you went there because I was I was thinking somewhat similarly what I like to do because I, I, I was always blessed to be able to go to conferences and a lot of my past jobs, but a lot of people that worked with me weren't. Um, so I would make sure to take uh, or have those people in the back of my mind as I'm attending these conferences. And if I hear something or I'm talking to somebody where this would be applicable to, you know, somebody that works for me or a peer, I'm now trying to make that connection not only with me, but to have an indirect connection with this other individual. So I'm taking a business card, I'm writing, I make sure to always write on the back of the card 
what I'm talking to this person about, where this would be relevant to my organization. And then when I get back, I'm making that, that connection. And then I'm telling the person I'm taking the card from, hey, I have this person back home that I'd love to connect you with um, to, to make sure we can kind of make improve what we're trying to do. I'm not directly involved, but I know somebody that is. Um, and, and so it's it's if you're not able to go for the people that are still going, maybe survey the people that you work with and say, okay, what do you, what would you like to get out of a conference like this? And I'll make sure to look at that for you. Yeah. I think just a final thought with that too. I think also when you're, if you're a leader and you're trying to determine who should go reviewing the agenda, just because I need a CEU doesn't mean that that's the right component for me to go to. So, you know, how do you split the deck? And I, and we're seeing that with an upcoming conference actually um, where organizations are actually selecting like one or two people to go from patient access, one person to go from billing, one to go from revenue integrity, one to go from IS, that's going to cover kind of all the IS components. And, uh, and really then them bringing that back and then them getting together and creating a mini version and being able to cross pollinate and share amongst all their teams versus saying, Hey, you know what? I'm sending two people from billing and nobody from patient access this time. Well, did you need to send two from billing or could you send one and then save that funding for patient access at another point in time? That's another way of doing it. But I think, you know, ultimately it's just trying to maintain those relationships. And if that's not something that you're good at, then find that mentor or that, you know, that informal or informal mentor to partner with them on helping get you out of your shell to do that introduction and open up that gateway for you. I, I think, you know, everybody needs that at times as well. All right. Well, I that's our only question on the Wilshire Lab today. So, Daniel, back to you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Marcy, Tim, for joining us today for our lifelong learning co conversation. Uh, I know we typically wrap things up with like how folks can reach out to you. And I know that you both have provided your contact information numerous times. Uh, but uh, other than like the website, is there a best way for folks to contact you? I'll start sure, with you, Tim. Can... Uh, Marcy, go ahead. Sorry, sure. They can look for me on uh, LinkedIn. So you can find me there, connect me through there. I'm pretty good about answering any questions that I get um, through the messaging section. So if you have any questions, feel free to message me and I'd be happy to respond. Yep. Same for me. I'm LinkedIn. Also, uh, you know, that's my work email. If you want to reach out, t.holland at the wilshiregroup.net. Um, happy to take and, and field questions there as well. And we got to start like wrapping things up with like fun facts about you all or something. Just uh, uh, throw a little spice in here. I didn't, I didn't want to put you on the spot without like prior notice or else you'd be like, shoot, like what's a fun fact about me? <laughs> I mean, they both have fun facts. I got texts last night. <laughs> 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 all right. Well, I think that's it for us today. But next time we'll definitely have fun facts and add that in. So uh, thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Uh, if you liked today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be followed at Daniel underscore TWG. Wilshire Group at TWG Health. On Facebook at the Wilshire Group or on Instagram at Wilshire IT Revcast. Remember, if you prefer to watch, come check us out at the Wilshire IT Revcast YouTube channel. If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts or get additional information on today's episode, email us at Wilshire Podcast at the Wilshire Group. 
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.net. The best way to support this podcast is to review, rate, and subscribe. See you next time. Bye-bye. The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group, experience you can trust, results you can count on.